Thank you guys so much for being here. Um, I, uh, I do have to start off by repenting because I, I am not perfect and, and I have fallen into the habit of spending too much time paying attention to what's going on, the, on in the world and not enough time paying attention to God. We have to hold those two things in our hands properly. Now, if you were here last week, we're going to be working on part two of this series that I'm working on called Outcasts, and it's, it's bound up in one of my favorite stories in the Bible. And, and if we want to go to the first slide, please, it's this, we covered this last week, that this is one of my favorite stories in the Bible. It's right at the beginning of the second act of David's life. If you remember from last week, that's okay. If, you're, if you weren't here, that's fine. You just have homework to do. And, uh, but this is the beginning of the second act of David's life. David's life had three acts. The first act being like David, the boy wonder giant killer in Saul's palace. The second act is David as an outlaw on the run from Saul, uh, chased everywhere he goes, and then the third act is David as king in the kingdom. And, and this is the beginning of the second act. And at this point, this happens that he leaves Gath and goes to the cave of Adullam, which is in the wilderness, and his brothers heard that he was there, as well as his father's household, and they came down to him. And then every person in trouble, every person in debt, every person who was embittered gathered round him, and he became their captain. About 400 men were with him. And this isn't my favorite story just because of that. Like a guy goes to the wilderness and then a bunch of weirdo losers come and gather around him. That's not a fun story by itself. But if we go to the, the end of the second act of David's life, by the time we get to David starting to come into his kingdom, we find out that he's surrounded by these mighty warriors. We find out that he's surrounded by, by Shamo, who like again, like kills a bunch of people in a lentil field, and Benaiah, who like is a killer of lions and, and handsome Egyptian men. Like he's surrounded by these mighty warriors who give everything of themselves to bring about justice and peace for the kingdom in which they live. And, and I'm fascinated because it doesn't ever say that, that David went and recruited a new bunch of skilled guys. He started with these scared and angry and in debt losers, and, and then they get transformed into mighty warriors of God. And that is the most fascinating thing that I can possibly think of. And, and the, mo the most important question that I could think of is, is how were these scared, angry, and in debt transformed into mighty warriors? And I know that we live in Edmonton, so it's very hard for us to imagine scared and angry and in debt people, right? Like this is very far outside our experience. But this is the billion dollar question. This is literally a billion dollar question because if you go to your local bookstore, remember bookstores? Um, if you go to your local bookstore, one of the largest sections that they have is the self-help section. If you go, if you happen to be on a social media and you've noticed that all of the ads that pop up, most of the ads in my algorithm, for some reason, are about things trying to help me be new and different somehow. And there's always a product for you to buy, a course, a podcast, a book, something that is going to change you. And this is a billion dollar industry. Now, we ought to ask ourselves the question, like, wait a minute, if any of these actually worked, we would stop buying the products. So your business plan is sort of weak. So maybe you're not actually trying to help us that much. That's a fair question for us to ask. 
But in the light of the Bible, we see this happen. This happens in the story. So how do the scared and angry and in debt be transformed into mighty warriors? And, and, and I submit to you that there's two steps and three things. So the first step is that they chose the cave. I covered this last week. They chose to leave the land where they were scared and angry and in debt and admit that they were scared and angry and in debt and go into the wilderness. That is the task of repentance. And we forget this as followers of Jesus sometimes, but the first word that Jesus announces as he announces the good news, you can go to the book of Mark and verify this, the first thing he says as he arrives to begin his ministry is repent. Repentance is the most important task that we as followers, as humans have, to recognize that the path that we are on has led us astray and we need to turn from that path and get on our right path. And what I find so fascinating about our time for both Christians and non-Christians is how, how frightening repentance seems to be. There seems to be something so terrifying for us about admitting that we were wrong. And I don't know why. Because in what Jesus tells us over and over again, it's in repenting and admitting that we were wrong and stopping making excuses for ourselves and, and admitting that like I've gone the wrong way and I've hurt myself and I've hurt other people and I haven't been and, and done what God has wanted me to do and I've failed in word and deed and admitting that and turning from that, we have joy. But what I've seen both Christians and non-Christians do over and over again is that they get find out that they are scared and angry and in debt and this way didn't work and they get here and rather than repenting and walking away, now we start to make excuses. Well, my parents were like this and then, and then circumstances around me went this way and I've been failed in this way and that way by every person around them and I get that and that's really important but that's context. All of our actions have context, but there is no excuses. At some point, we made a choice to go our own path rather than the path that God had designed for us, and it led us astray. And the only way that we're gonna find joy is to turn from it. The only way that we're gonna find joy is to admit that like, it doesn't matter if I didn't mean to, I hurt people. I hurt myself. I did damage to the world around me. I have sinned in word and deed by what I have done and by what I have left undone. And until we're willing and able to do that privately and publicly, individually and communally, we're not going to be the people that God has called us to be. The first step is that we have to choose the cave. We have to admit that this world doesn't work for us. And we need to admit that we are scared and angry and in debt and we are deeply in need of transformation the thing that will keep us from being transformed into what God has called us to be, the largest and most dangerous thing that is preventing us from that is thinking that we are already mighty warriors, that we've already got it together. Reading the story and thinking like, I'm already Benaiah, I'm already Shama. No, you're not yet. God wants you to be, but until we repent, we can't get there. So the next thing that happens is, is they find some things in the cave. There's things that are, that, are, uh, that, that are life-giving that they find there. If we could go to the next one. The first thing, we talked about these a little bit last week. The first thing that they found was a family to belong to. 
In that first passage, when David escapes to the wilderness, his brothers and his father's household heard about it, and they go and join him. What we need to be transformed is a family of people around us who are willing to give up on this world to go be with the one in the wilderness. We need to be like Jesus, people who are willing to leave the 99 and chase the one. We need to be people who are willing to give up what is safe, what is expected, what is comfortable, and to choose what is better for the benefit of our brother. And I think as Christian church people, we need to ask ourselves a very serious question, are we really willing to do that? It's not enough just to gather in rooms like this, and this is really important, and I think it's incredibly powerful, and and I just experienced a major breakthrough 10 minutes ago because of gathering in this room with you, but this isn't enough. We can think that this is the wilderness, and it's not. It's just another safe, comfortable place. We need to be willing to give up everything to go and be with our brother. The second thing that they find is leaders to follow. It's fascinating about this, and again, I talked about this last week, but they found leaders who, David was a man after God's own heart. That, that's how God defines him. Now, do not follow any of David's actions because that, that is not the point of the story. The point of the story of David is not like you should do what David did. You should like steal a guy's wife and then murder him, right? That's not the point of the story. That, but David had something in him that was what God had called him to be, and they found that in the cave. And then the third thing that they find that they didn't cover the last week, that we're gonna cover this, this week, and I think this transforms the story into something brilliant and fascinating, is that they found deeds to do. There is no transformation without action. I am proof positive that more information about the Bible and Jesus will not make you holy. You need to have a series of actions that transforms who you are, and we see what this looks like as we go on in the passage. So in 1 Samuel 23, he's still in the cave, and he hears some information. David was told, look, the Philistines are fighting against Kila and looting the threshing floors. He inquired of the Lord saying, shall I go and attack these Philistines? And the Lord answered him, go and attack the Philistines and save Kila. So already we're starting to see what makes a leader worth following. David hears about some people who are not of his group, right? The, the, the people at Kila aren't in the wilderness with him. They're not the 400 scared and angry and in debt. They're not his father's households. There's not his brother's households. But he hears that people are suffering and it matters to him. It's one of the f- first things that we should evaluate leadership by. Does our leader notice people who are suffering that are not part of our group? That is a fair way to judge leadership. And we can do that politically on both sides right now. I believe we have a failure in leadership in this country for a whole lot of reasons. But one of the main things is that none of our leaders, regardless of any party, think that the people who don't already agree with them matter. And there's not just one person who's guilty of that. It's all of them. And that makes them bad leaders. Leaders notice the people that don't look like them, that don't live like them, that don't sound like them, and leaders notice when they're suffering. And that's what David does. 
He's told the Philistines are acquiring. And so God says, yes, go do this. When we, go, when, we, when we go to God and say like, hey, should we help this people that need help? God is almost always going to say, yes. The Lord answered him and said, go and attack the Philistines and save Kyla. But this is interesting. David goes to his 400 scared, angry, and in debt men. And he's like, so you guys ready? We're going to go attack the Philistines and Kyla. And it, as we can see, were they cool with that? Did they think that was a great idea? No, they don't. David's men said to him, here in Judah, we are afraid. Then how, then if we go, how much more then if we go against Kyla to against the Philistine forces? I love what these men do. They say to David, and there's an honesty in this that I love, even as much as they're wrong. There's an honesty and says like, look, I don't know if you noticed, David, but we're the scared and the angry and in debt here. We didn't come here because we were awesome and ready to attack people, right? That's not, like, we didn't, like, we're not the kings, we're not the people that are first picked, David. So I don't know what you expect is going to happen when we go attack a bunch of well-trained Philistines. And what's amazing in the next passage is just David agrees with them. David's like, man, that's right. And then he goes and inquires of the Lord again. And he's like, I don't, I don't know if you noticed like the people that I have with me, but like you told me to go attack Kyla, but like, is it with different guys? Cause like they don't want to go. And I kind of agree with them. So do you think that we should do this? And what does God say? God says, go to Kyla for I'm going to give the Philistines into your hand. And this is why I love biblical literature so much because it leaves out all of the details and just gives us the result. That David and his men went to Kyla, fought the Philistines, and carried off their livestock. He inflicted heavy losses on the Philistines and saved the people of Kyla. Now what makes this awesome is that all, we can, our imaginations get to put all of the things in there to fill out this story. Because we don't have a training montage, right? It's not like David goes and it's like, okay, guys, I'm going to teach you all how to be warriors here. Like, this is how you hold your sword, and we're going to take, like, six weeks, and there's going to be, like, an awesome hair metal song playing, and at the end, you'll all be, like, lifting donkeys over your head, right? That's not the way the story works. David just says, the Lord told us to go. We're going. They go. They attack the Philistines, and God gives them the victory. So you can imagine, these are not skilled fighters, this victory is given to them not because of their skill, but because of who God is. It's not given to them because they're awesome. It's because God is awesome. So you can imagine these, these weirdos, these scared, angry, and debt losers just like, like covering their eyes and swinging their sword and like having massive amounts of Philistines fall or like, like hiding behind a rock and then a rock falls on all of the Philistines. Like that's what God did in this moment. This victory wasn't given because they were all, because they were just these fit, amazing fighters who had trained for years. It was given to them because God was with them and he wanted to happen what they were working towards. And we forget this so often as church people. We forget that not many of us were, were brilliant. Not many of us were well-born. Not many of us were geniuses. And we start to think that because we gather in these rooms and because we get into our own echo chamber that we're so genius and smart and the rest of the world just is too dumb to figure this out. And we think that the things that are good that are happening happen because we figured it out and we're awesome. And it's not the case at all. 
the victories that we have are not because of what we've done, but because of what God has done and what he chooses to do. He wants the people of Kila to be saved, and he wants these David's people to be transformed, and so he does an amazing work. And I think that this is really important and interesting, that the deeds that we are called to do, the deeds that transform us, are sacrificial acts. It comes surprising, like, what should we do? Well, you should do something that is risky, that benefits someone else. And I know that that might sound surprising, but if we're genuinely followers of Jesus, the primary example of Jesus is one of sacrificial love. What Jesus does is to lay his life down for others. Let's look it up on the next one. When, when Jesus is giving his disciples their final instructions before he goes to the cross, one of the things that he says is this, now remain in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will remain in my love just as I have kept my father's commands and remain in his love. I've told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. My command is this, love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no man than this, than he laid down his life for one's friends. You are my friends if you do what I command. The command for us as followers of Jesus is to lay down our lives for other people. And one of the things that has dismayed me so much in these last weeks and months is the number of brothers and sisters of mine that are spending all of their time talking about their rights. What about my rights? What about my rights? What about my rights? Under the command of Jesus, we lay all of that down because Jesus did that. He laid down his life for his friends. Jesus was God, but he, being in every nature God, he did not grasp what was his, but he laid down his life, taking on the form of a servant. This is the example that we have. So if we're asking ourselves the question of how do we do deeds like Jesus did, we risk ourselves and we lay down our lives and we give ourselves up for other people. That is what we do and that is what is transformational. The Pharisees gave of their money, but when they gave of their money, they were expecting adulation and reward in, their, in return, and what God said to them is like, you've already received your reward. You can do, <laughs> Pharisees did missions, and Jesus said, you travel over an earth and sea to make a convert and make him twice the son of hell than you, that you are. It wasn't sacrificial action for other people. It was to build themselves up and to reinforce who they believe themselves to be. And Jesus said to them repeatedly, it doesn't matter. Unless you do it in love, unless you do it sacrificially, unless it costs, it doesn't matter. Paul repeats this as well, and you all should know this passage. If I speak with the tongues of men and angels and have not love... I am a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have all mysteries and I understand all knowledge but don't have love, it profits me nothing. If I give all that I possess 
to the poor and give my body to be destroyed and I don't have love, it's nothing. The deeds that are required of us are deeds of sacrificial love. And I'm sorry, because I've been part of this, I'm sorry if you as a, as a follower of Jesus have been sold a bill of goods where we've told you that if you follow Jesus, your life is gonna be great and easy from now on. If that's what you've gotten, I'm sorry about that. That's not what the Bible says at all. Immediately after this passage, Jesus says to his followers, you will have much trouble in this world, but take heart, I have overcome the world. If you're wondering why it hurts, if you're wondering why it costs to follow Jesus, if you're wondering why it feels dangerous to follow Jesus, it's because it's supposed to. Because that is what transforms us. If you started following Jesus because you thought, if I just give my life to Jesus, now I'm gonna get everything that I want, I'm sorry, you've been lied to. That's not Jesus, that's the genie from Aladdin. but there are entirely too many of us that may, not act, that may not intellectually think that Jesus is supposed to give us everything that we want, but when we sit in the dark, in the quiet, when we're just about to fall asleep, and we feel that discontent, how many of us think, God, it's not supposed to be like this. I deserve something else. We need to repent of that. I need to repent of that. So the command of Jesus is sacrificial love, action on behalf of those in need. And that command includes all people, even those you disagree with and even those that will betray you. Can we go to the next slide? This is really fascinating. So we have family to belong with leaders. I want to go to the next one, and I might go back. Sorry if I'm going to confuse me, confuse you. So right after this happens... David's with the people of Kyla. He's just given them this great victory. They have everything they want. And David then asks the Lord, like David finds out that Saul's looking for him. And David asks, might be a little bit early, sorry. <laughs> That's my bad. Sorry. I got, I put my slides in the wrong order. Okay. Reset. This is definitely the third act of the sermon, though. Like, I'm almost, but, like, not right away. You would have been sitting back there a while. And anyway, sorry. Okay, so David, uh, so David finds out that Saul's looking for him and that, and that there's people in his, in, that, that, that are going to, like, give Saul information about where he is. And David inquires of the Lord, which is, again, another demonstration of good leadership. Your leadership should, a good leader is constantly inquiring of the Lord, and that's what David does at his best. At his worst, he doesn't, but... He says, well, the citizens of Kyla surrender me and my men to Saul. And the Lord said, they will. The sacrificial action that changes us, that transforms us into who God has called us to be, is sometimes going to be on behalf of people who will betray us. I hear so much in the world, and it's creeped into Christian circles does this person deserve our help? Deserve is one of the worst words in the English language. 
And if you find yourself saying, I deserve, you probably are wrong. Or at least that's been true in my life. But we say, I deserve, like these people don't deserve to be rescued from the Philistines. Now they're gonna be betrayed. We don't do that because of them. We do it because of us. We do it because of God. There was a lawyer, a teacher of the law, and you know this story. He came to Jesus and said, what is the most important commandment? And you know what happens. Jesus says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. And then this lawyer, teacher of the law says, ah, but who is my neighbor? And he's trying to get out of it. He's trying to narrow the scope of who he has to care about to something that feels manageable to him, to a group of people that will not betray him, to a group of people that are like him. And what does Jesus do? He tells him a story. He tells him a story about a man who was who was beaten and robbed and left on the side of the road, and then a Pharisee walks by and ignores him, and then a teacher of the law walks by and ignores him, and then a Samaritan, the most vile person that he could possibly imagine. For your average, uh, like, for your average evangelical, if we're trying to imagine what a Samaritan was like, imagine like, I don't know, like a trans woman with a Antifa sweater on, goes and helps him. That's the farthest that they could talk about, the farthest outside of his realm of experience. And this person helps him. And Jesus then says to the lawyer, which one was the neighbor? The one who showed mercy on him, Jesus says. Go and do likewise. We make other people neighbors by our actions. It's not about them. It's not about do they deserve, it's not about are they one of us, it's not about do they fit into our group. We do it because God has commanded us to and that's what changes us and that's where our joy is. And if we find ourselves as followers of Jesus wondering where our joy is, if we can go back to the, if we can go back to the John passage, if we're wondering where our joy is, maybe it's because we're not loving each other well enough. Maybe it's because we're not sacrificing enough for each other. Maybe it's because we're not genuinely keeping Jesus' commands. Because he says it's in that that our joy will be complete. And I'm not just saying this to you, I'm saying this to myself. Because I need that joy too. And I have to ask myself the question, if my joy isn't complete, it's not because God is lacking in joy to hand out. It's not because he's not a good father who doesn't want us to have it. Maybe I'm not operating in the place where I can experience his joy fully. Can we go back to the last slide, please? And you guys can probably come up now. (laughs) Sorry. This This is the, yeah, I'm gonna be done. So there's something fascinating that happens. So they... When they go to leave Kyla, and this is a non-rhetorical question, I want a brave person to shout out the answer as soon as they figure it out. I'm gonna ask two non-rhetorical questions. How many men are with David when he leaves? When he leaves Kyla, sorry, clarify. 600, right. How many were with him when he left to go to Kyla? 400. You know what that means? And this should get you excited because it gets me excited. That means that 200 people saw these scared, 
angry and in debt losers. Sacrifice themselves and risk everything attacking the Philistines for the benefit of Kyla. And then is it watching them leave Kyla to go into the wilderness and to Lord knows what. They don't know what's headed there. All they know is that these men are being attacked by the king and they are on the run. And 200 other people said, I want that. I don't know what's going on here. I don't know what's going on in Kyla. I don't know what's going on in the empire, but I want to be like that. And if there's anything that's a sure church growth principle that you can count on, it's that when we actually do what Jesus has called us to do, more people are going to come alongside and say, I want to do that. I don't know what's going on here. I don't know. I don't understand. But those guys were scared and angry and in debt, and now they're doing this, and I want to join them. So this is the question that we have as followers of Jesus. Are we going to admit that we are outcasts? That the empire doesn't work for us either? That we're scared and angry and in debt and need to be transformed if we're going to be anything for ourselves and for the people around us? Are we willing to admit that or are we going to stand in the empire thinking that things are okay? That we're comfortable and fine? And if we're willing to admit that, if we're willing to admit that we need to be transformed, that we're not who God has called us to be, are we willing to act sacrificially on behalf of other people? Are we willing to give of ourselves for people who don't like us, who don't agree with us, and who will definitely betray us? Are we willing to do that? Because that's what Jesus commanded. It's not complex, it's really simple, but it's incredibly hard. But the promise is that the Holy Spirit will be with us and indwelling, in us, indwelling us through every part of that hardness. And the, and the promise in addition is that our joy will be complete. So we have a choice between the fake joy that the world offers in comfort, the fake joy that the world offers in, 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 in safety that isn't real, or we can step into the dangerous wilderness into which God has called us where we are going to be transformed into mighty people who benefit those around us. That's the choice, and it's always the choice. So let's pray and ask ourselves what we, and, and, and ask God what we want to do in response to his command. God, I stand before you not as one who is already transformed. I stand before you, God, not as somebody who is, 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 is a mighty warrior. I stand before you as someone who is scared and angry and in debt. And I need to be transformed. And I believe that many of my brothers and sisters in here need to be transformed as well. And we're scared to live sacrificially and we don't like some of the people that you've told us to give of ourselves for and we and we get angry that the world isn't the way that we feel it ought to be but i'm asking at this moment that you meet us then that you begin to change us that as we start to obey your commands that your joy is made complete in us because that is what we desperately need both for us and for the people around us so change us now, we ask this in Jesus' name.